Best case ever. Best case ever. Yes, this is EM Case's Best Case Ever mini podcast series, and I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman. In anticipation of our upcoming episode on disaster medicine, we have the one and only Lori Mazarek from Sunnybrook Hospital, who's the head of disaster planning at the hospital. She's an emergency physician and has been for, I won't say how many years, but very experienced emergency physician. Uh, Lori, it's a pleasure to have you on EM Cases for your best case ever. This isn't really the best case in the sense it has a, a bad outcome for the people involved. It has a very good outcome for the rest of the people in the world who had to deal with this problem, which is how to intubate a SARS patient. But I do have to give you a bit of background. It's 2003, and it's February, and I get an email from WHO, who I have absolutely no idea how they have my email address, that says there is a mysterious respiratory disease that people need to be aware of, anybody coming from China or Hong Kong to your emergency department. And if you do encounter them, you have to wear an N95 respirator. They say N95 respirator. At that time, I tell you, I had absolutely no idea what that meant. I thought it was like scuba gear or something, so I'm online. And as SARS progressed and more healthcare providers were getting sick with SARS from taking care of them, they were adding layers and layers of PPE. So we ended up with the double-double, double mask, double eye protection, double gloves, double gown, double uh, hair protection, double uh, shoes. And it was very difficult to work in this on a regular basis for hours at a time. It uh, affected your ability to concentrate. I know one physician who actually did his own blood gas, he found out uh, his PCO2 was 60, his PO2 was 60. So he had a pretty good explanation of why we were irritable and miserable in this equipment. So trying to then manage the extremely ill SARS patient who has what we know to have a very lethal disease that is commonly spread to healthcare providers who are trying to assist these very patients and all of us having the biggest fear, not so much getting sick ourselves, interestingly enough, but that we would take that disease home. The problem became, how do you protect yourselves while trying to provide care? We had a case at Janus General where a team of uh, healthcare providers were preparing to intubate a very sick man with SARS. He had uh, extensive diarrhea. He was in respiratory failure. He was hypoxic and very combative. And because he was combative, there were multiple people in the room trying to assist. They had at least three or four nurses. They had an RT. They had a uh, a resident and a uh, physician. And they were worried that if they paralyzed him, that in fact they might not be able to intubate him. And he was already hypoxic. So they were trying to sedate him and restrain him and PPE was being displaced. And in that room, I think it was six people became exposed to SARS and actually developed SARS. They were wearing the double-double. But what they didn't realize, and they should have realized, is that it's the aerosolization of the virus at that time. The the equipment was so uncomfortable, you were continually adjusting it. You try having goggles and a face shield, it fogs. So it became extremely difficult to know. And you were wearing what you were told to wear. 
But the human factors had never been studied to see how that would get displaced when you're dealing with a combative patient and so forth. So the fact that these many people got sick with SARS, although none of them ended up on a ventilator, certainly it was, a, was an experience for most of them that in, in the nurses' cases, all of them left ICU. In fact, we had a great exodus of ICU nurses afterwards. And to this day, some of those clinicians who are friends of mine find it very difficult to talk about SARS because of the experience that they had in their minds, which was a trying to help someone and suffer, you know, a threat to their life as a result. But the fact that they did that, it was a moment in time for all of us, especially close to home, where we decided enough is enough. There were a lot of specialists and experts trying to tell us what we should wear to actually protect ourselves that was consistently not working. The clinicians, the frontline clinicians, self-organized and worked together by internet, which was relatively new at that time, actually contacted Hong Kong and said, you know, this is what we have. What can we do to make it better? And we discovered these principles, which once they were adopted, nobody got SARS. So I'll tell you the tips on that, but the important take-home of this is really if you're on the front lines, don't wait for some expert to tell you what to do. It's your life and your peers' life that's online. You need to take ownership of what it is required to protect you. You need to learn about it and understand that you work in your environment, not some infectious disease or environmental control expert. They don't do what you do. They don't know what the human factors are or what it feels like to wear that equipment for that long. And so you need to own it. And so we did, and we found that PAPRs or powered air purifying respirators were probably this, were the safest, and anybody wearing them did not get SARS. And then there were some basic principles so that you could, even if you did use the double-double, which because not everybody had the higher advanced uh, uh, protection, if you took these principles, you lowered your risk to probably close to zero. Number one is to avoid any high-risk situations if you can. And how do you do that? Well, early transfer to ICU. If somebody's don't keep them in your emergency department, get them out. You expose a lot of people in your emergency department. You don't have necessarily or you may have limited amounts to contain them the, with negative pressure rooms. Early intubation. Don't wait till they're hypoxic and agitated and aggressive. Do it early. No CPAP, no BiPAP, no nebulized solutions, no bronchoscopy. No high-frequency oscillation. Why? Because all of those things aerosolize, aerosolize the particles. If you're going to use, a, you could use Hyox, which is a special mask with a filter. So when it's exhaled, it's, it's filtered and trapped. And use people trained in the proper use of the advanced PPE, and you have to train. There's no better incentive than the fact that your life's on the line and potentially your friends and peers if you're exposed to them afterwards. And minimize the number of personnel in the room always like one or two in the best intubator, not the, it isn't a time for a learner to supervise a learner and minimize the time that you're actually in the room to, to reduce the exposure. Again, use a PAPR or a powered air purifying respirator. Even if your infectious disease says that's too expensive, we know from having been in these things, they're cool. You can actually function. They don't fog. The $1,500 they cost is worth, is well money well spent given that you'll still be working afterwards. And always remember, paralyze the patient because if they can't cough, they're not going to spew that uh, viral load out towards you. Once they're intubated, fine, sedate them, filter the tube, manage them the way you would normally do. But again, reduce the number of people that go into the room. If you can follow those things, you'll stay safe in a high-risk biological threat sort of patient. And thinking that they won't come back or that that's not going to happen, we have drug-resistant TB. You never know who's coming from where with what and whether you're going to be 
scene zero or what is it called? Epicenter of the first outbreak. Toronto was the epicenter for Canada for SARS, but it could be anytime, anywhere. So take the time to learn about PPE and how to protect yourself and recognize that uh, limiting the number of people in the room and paralyzing are essential steps to protecting yourself and the others in the room. Let's review now how to approach the airway of a patient with a potential biohazard. First, learn how to properly don personal protective equipment. We've got a video on EM cases filed under a rational approach to emergency Ebola preparedness if you need to brush up on that. Use a PAPR, that's a powered air purifying respirator, if you have one. And if you don't have a PAPR, wear the double-double garb. Next, make sure you get the patient into a negative pressure room if you can. Now, when it comes to intubation, it should be done early by the most experienced intubator, and the patient should be transferred out of your department ASAP to the ICU. Things to avoid when managing the airway of a patient with a potential biohazard? Well, basically anything that can potentially spread air particles. Avoid bagging the patient, avoid NIPPV, avoid NEBS, avoid bronchoscopy, and avoid high oscillation ventilators. And lastly, keep the patient paralyzed so they can't cough all over you. Almost every nurse that was in the looking after SARS patient quit afterwards. They did not abandon their post, but they quit afterwards. And the reason they didn't quit, they had a commitment to healthcare. Like during SARS, they, they were not going to abandon their patient care. But afterwards, there was definitely stress. There was definitely a realization of just how close things were. And I got to tell you, I was absolutely crazy during that period because I was part of the SARS operations center. And so I was aware of what the city and the province were planning. They were planning to go to shut down Toronto, just like they, like in a 1918 influenza outbreak. They were going to shut it down. And I'm like, oh, my God, I've got to get my, my uh, you know, my son was four then, my husband. I said, I was buying uh, solar battery chargers and 40 miles. And I said, you're going to the cottage. I don't know what's going to happen here. I just thought, I thought it was the closest I ever felt that, you know, something that I'm supposed to be trained to manage was actually posing a threat to me and my family. And that was definitely a feeling I never want to feel again. But the other thing that uh, I think was heightened is my awareness of just how fragile our healthcare system is and how both the cream and the not such cream rises to the occasion where I walked into a room of scientists where, who were discussing the order of whose names are going to be first on publication. And I'm like, mm, you know, we have other things, priorities, like that's important, but that's important after we make sure we're safe and, and things like that. So, yeah. So it does boil down to taking ownership. Frontlines need to have ownership. I think too many times we rely on experts to, oh, that's their problem. They'll tell us what to do. But then we pay a price for that. And I think we we should definitely have ownership. You know, emergency should own disaster medicine. They absolutely should own it. Nobody deals with all the specialties more than us. Nobody deals with EMS. Nobody probably has better health system awareness than us. So it is definitely our domain. Thanks so much to Dr. Masaryk for that powerful reminder that we need to step up and own disaster medicine. For more on managing disasters, stay tuned for our upcoming main podcast episode with Dr. Masaryk, as well as Dr. Daniel Kolick and Dr. Josh Bazanson of the Epic Podcast, where we'll discuss more on biohazards, mass casualty triaging and management, managing your ED when a natural disaster hits, and much more. 